Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Markets Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your ever gracious host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Saad Siddiqui, Managing Director of Emerging Markets Fixed Income Strategy at J.P. Morgan Securities. Saad, an absolute privilege to have you here today. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you, Damian, for having me on. I'm a fan of your show. And I'm a fan of yours, the At Any Rate podcast. You guys have to listen to it, available, I believe, on Apple, Spotify, and whatever. You get your podcast now that we plug that side. Let's get into it, right? Let's begin by discussing, if, if you wouldn't mind, the two primary drivers of EM risk premium over the past few weeks, namely U.S. Treasury yields and the price of oil. You know, for me and, and our audience, you know, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what makes this beta regime different than previous environments, you know, where valuations we're forced to contend with elevated geopolitical and market risk. I mean, how are you recommending investors' position in the current environment? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thanks for the for the plug for our for our own podcast as well, Damien. Appreciate it. In terms of how we're thinking about the markets right here, I mean, over the last couple of months, we've had to deal with two shocks, two pretty uh, formidable shocks for emerging markets. The first of those. Uh, was, as you mentioned, it was the this relentless rise in U.S. Treasury yields, which really began over the summer, but uh, has accelerated uh, through uh, the last few weeks. And then we've had rising oil prices as well, which again began sometime at, at the end of June, early July. Uh, and that's been another force to contend with. I think the first leg... Uh, through August and, and a bit of September, this was seen to be a one-off repricing in treasuries and oil. And once we once we found some stability, we could then go back to watching some of the fundamentals that were so important for EM, such as inflation that was moderating and the cutting cycles from central banks that were seen to be underway. But I think that over the last couple of weeks, especially since we had this geopolitical shock from the Middle East as well, it's now begun to take on a bit more of a fundamental uh, hue to it. It's not just seen to be a one-off type of repricing and then we mean revert quickly anymore. It feels uh, as if we're seeing now a higher for longer regime in the U.S. And I think we're also the markets and investors are also a little bit apprehensive about what um, higher oil prices could mean for headline inflation in EM and what it might mean for central banks as well. So all told, I think we are a little bit at an inflection point uh, in the regime. It could get a little bit challenging, but so much just depends on when we're going to see the end of this U.S. Treasury uh, sell-off. I think that's really the key call to make here. If it continues, then I think uh, investors are going to start thinking about a broader shift possibly, but equally, it could uh, pause and come to an end as well. We saw some prominent investors talking about covering their U.S. Treasury shorts the other day. 
Um, so that's really the big question right now and open-ended. You know, Sad, it's so funny. You must be um, you must be sitting closely to your friends over in U.S. rates because, you know, when I think, you know, sell-off in U.S. treasuries, all I can think and all I can see is U.S. dollar strength. And that has been the feature in this current sell-off. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You know, what is the impact of a stronger dollar on EM fixed income? I mean, I was listening to your At Any Rate podcast, you know, with Mira Chandon. And, you know, she had mentioned that based on rate differentials alone, I mean, euro dollar is somewhere in the 104 range and dollar yen is at 153. I mean, obviously, you know, stronger dollar from current levels based on rate differentials alone, mind you. But you know, just curious to hear, you know, what you expect from the dollar here and should EM investors be looking to re-engage at current levels? So I think what's really interesting here is if you look at what's happened to EM currencies since the start of this month, or if we just take as a reference date, uh, the 6th of October, which is um, you know the last trading day before we had uh, that attack on Israel, um, you've actually seen pretty resilient EM currency performance. You know, so over that period, you know, if, if, I, if we didn't know anything else, but if I told you on the 6th of October, we're going to have this geopolitical shock, this horrendous attack that's going to take place um, and, and in the Middle East. And then we're going to see U.S. Treasury yields, 10-year bonds going to 5% or trading through 5%. You would have probably thought that we'd get <laughs> a lot more dollar strength than what we've seen. But since that time, you know, South African RAND has given you positive returns, BRL, Colombian peso. Um, you know, so that I think we need to unpack we need to unpack this because it seems to me that the you know higher U.S. yields aren't giving us the same type of dollar strength, the same magnitude of dollar strength or the breadth of dollar strength that we might have expected to see uh, in the past. And I feel some of this is to do with EM currency valuations. You know, so back in August, we had a big uh, you know, the sell-off started really back then, uh, and we had a big clean, clean out of not just valuations, but also positioning. So your starting point is a lot better, and that counts for something. The other uh, bit is that uh, I think uh, EM central banks are pretty attuned to these types of external risks. So we've seen them, you know, maybe pivot a little bit more hawkishly. You know, we had the uh, the surprise rate hike in Indonesia last week. We had, um, you know, we, we were getting some more hawkish type of commentary coming out of Central Bank of Mexico as well. So uh, I think investors are expecting EM central banks to be also, you know, not as, they're not really on autopilot when it comes to the cutting cycle as well. So they are looking to use interest rates as a bit of a buffer as well. And finally, I think we also need to um, maybe open the door to the fact that maybe there's a bit of a, you know, dollar needs a bit of risk premium here as well. You know, saying that as an EM person sounds, um, you know, a little bit strange. Um, but, you know, there is that other narrative of, uh, you know, very wide and, you know, cyclically um, misaligned U.S. fiscal deficits. And yeah. that's leading to U.S. running, you know, large twin deficits as well. Um, so maybe the dollar is just, um, you know, is just a bit less sensitive to uh, to um, uh, to interest rates here. And something that you'd mentioned 
before as well, Damien, that we don't really have those in you know inelastic um, buyers of of U.S. Treasuries. Um, right. uh, so there's just much more price sensitivity, not just for Treasuries, but for the dollar. You know, is, is seeing a little bit of a sh- of a shift in terms of uh, of the of the of the buyer base and uh, their behavior. Well, you know, Saad, it's funny. I mean, if you, you know, let's take it to the period, you know, before, you know, um, the 6th of October, right? I mean, this year, if you looked at FX performance, it was largely, largely a carry story, you know, and, and, you know, now what I'm seeing, I mean, you know, you mentioned some of the more hawkish central banks. I'll, I'll, I'll take the other side of that and mention Hungary and Chile and some of the things we're kind of witnessing there. Um, the fact that despite the fact that the Fed might have to keep going here, you know, you are now finally seeing emerging market central banks starting to cut in the face of that and their currencies are bearing the brunt of it. I'm curious, you know, with all that carry on a nominal basis that's sitting out there, or even on an inflation-adjusted basis for that matter, I wonder, you know, is now the time to start monetizing that? I mean, where, you know, sh- should emerging market investors feel comfortable, you know, you know, kind of taking on, you know, that risk given where volatility levels are now, which, you know, you, you know you've rightly pointed out, kind of feel a little bit low relative to where we should be at, you know, at this point, you know, given some of the things we've just witnessed. I'm just curious, you know, is the carry trade dead or is it just taking a, a little bit of hiatus here? Well, that's a really good question. And it's the most important one for EM currency investors right now. But what I would do is maybe slightly take a, a different angle on the carry trade. So, you know, you're right to say Generally speaking, higher currency, uh, higher carry currencies this year have given you higher total returns. But you know you do have large outliers in that. You know Turkey has pretty high carry, but that's uh, not uh, given you uh, you know high returns this year. It's been one of the worst performing currencies uh, year to date. So I think what we've had since the start of this year is not just a, a number of these large. EM currencies with historically high carry, but you had valuation, you had carry, and you had fundamentals all in this virtuous cycle. You know, so we were seeing um, you know, current account balances come in. You know, the adjustment. You know, the adjustment. Uh, we were seeing that from higher rates was Im- impacting um, kind of inflation and growth and bringing in current account balances. So you you had this um, uh, this kind of trinity of uh, of, of four forces uh, that were all acting in unison. I think going forward, it is going to become a little bit more mixed, but I don't think it's time to to call it a day for the carry trade. I think it still does have legs in it. When you think about um, you know the uh, just the level of of interest rates uh, that exists right now, and even what's priced in to yield curves twelve months from now, it's still pretty high. So, um, and by that time, we're, we probably would have seen the peak of the Fed rate cycle as well. So, I think carry is going to have um, you know it's got some more legs to it, and I think it's being underpinned by inflation. That's Generally moderating, you know, there's a few questions now whether, you know, higher oil prices could uh, append that process or, or pause that process, which I think is kind of a valid, uh, valid question. Um, but so long as, you know, external balances are well contained and 
um, the level of carry is high and the central banks are acting in a way that's seen to be generally um, you know, prudent and not reckless, um, I think you're going to get decent total returns in EM currencies. Now, there are a few exceptions to that you mentioned, Chile. So places where we're going to see that carry erode very rapidly and pretty much like go to something that looks very low by historical standards in, in Chile's case versus the U.S., some of those currencies will underperform. Um, but on the whole, I think the level of carry is still high. I think the amount that's priced in right now is also suggesting to us that um, you know you you don't want to be missing out on these returns. You know, Saad, it's so I, I just have to for our audience clarify what you said in the beginning is so important. The fact that there are, there are a, a number of different factors which impact the M currencies, and in my opinion, carry being one, values another, growth maybe with a terms of trade overlay, trends, so on and so forth, maybe breath. But you're absolutely right to point out that value has been an outstanding performer alongside carry, which makes sense, right? Because if you think about some of the, you know, kind of based on some sort of purchasing power parity model, you know, you could probably make a case that a lot of your carry candidates are also your 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 value candidates, right? And, and, and certainly on the funding side as well. So, you know, I think that's such a key point here. And, you know, I guess the question I have is, you know, since the commodity super cycle sort of burst in 2014, you know, EM has witnessed, EM local debt has witnessed considerable outflows, right? I, I, I'm, I'm wondering this EM DM growth differential, right? Which was a big selling point for our asset class for the better part of the last decade. I mean, does, do emerging markets still have the potential to, to deliver a growth premium over developed markets or, or has that ship sailed? Very good question again. So, you know, in the last, so, so my take on this is if you look at the last decade or so, emerging markets, at least pre-COVID or even like after COVID, it's only in this inflationary uh, impulse we've had post-COVID that big right. interest rate differentials have really uh, picked up. But basically from the GFC all the way till this in latest inflationary episode, you know, about 18 months ago, uh, interest rate differentials between EM and DM had really co collapsed. You And not just interest rate differentials, but the level of rates everywhere had also collapsed. Right. So what that meant was the carry factor was no longer there, right? So if you think about the performance of EM carry strategies, it basically stalls for the best part of a decade from 2010 onwards. Whereas in the prior 20 years, it was one of the best performing uh, factors. It was, you know, after the equity uh, risk premium puzzle, uh, you know, the, the forward discount puzzle in EM currencies, the fact that you get excess returns in these high rate currencies was one of the best documented uh, empirical uh, kind of anomalies in, in the finance literature. But that basically comes to a halt because rate differentials and the absolute level rates compress. And that made us very sensitive, overly sensitive to growth. Because if you're not giving carry, then the only engine you've got left is that growth differential engine. And we saw that capital flows were very sensitive to those growth differentials. What's happened in the last couple of years is we've revived that carry factor and Emerging markets are not just about growth. It's also about the carry that you're getting. 
and without necessarily without necessarily delivering growth we still had pretty decent returns in a number of these high carry high carry uh, high carry places so i think the carry factor is as important as the growth factor in fact historically it was more important it's only kind of a feature of the the qe uh, era that we were in uh, that growth became so important. Um, that said, I'm, you know, I think growth is very important as far as capital flows are concerned. That's so, so much kind of part of that narrative that investors have right. when they look to invest in EM. They, it's, it's about that growth differential. And to me, it seems that it's difficult to see that growth differential really picking up. So, you know, EMs are going to be generating higher growth than DMs because of demographics, because of productivity catch up and so on. But it's clearly falling that that EMDM growth differential. And to me, it it's it's hard to see what's going to result in that picking up, especially when you have the drag from China, which is, you know, largest part of, of, of EM, <laughs> uh, of EM GDP. But I guess what I'm trying to say here is that you don't necessarily need, uh, you know, a big or rising growth differential to still give you attractive returns. The carry is going to be as important. And so long as we have this right. carry, you know, we have the carry in local markets, we have it in some of these high yielders uh, on the hard currency side as well. So I think the the return environment is going to um, still be uh, a robust one, a buoyant one, uh, but. Uh, the capital flows environment may not be as strong. And I think this is where we're going to see a dichotomy. We saw this year, you had very high returns in a lot of local markets, but you didn't have flows coming in, chasing right. that return. You know, investors were on the sidelines. So maybe we need to see a bit of a shift in narrative and how we sell EM because we've become so so you know accustomed to selling it on a growth differential story. Well, you know, you haven't needed a big growth pickup to generate these types of returns. I mean, goodness, look at how China has been performing in the past couple exactly. of quarters. You've still had decent return in, in a number of these currencies uh, and, and hard currencies as well, um, bond markets where you might not have expected returns when we were when we only had the growth factor to go by. Well, Saad, I can't let you leave without asking you about the elephant in the room, that being China. <laughs> you know, I mean, for myself and many, you know, who I speak with, um, the feeling is that we're moving into this multipolar world, which is dominated by both the U.S. and China, and that this is forcing a lot of economies, a lot of countries, a lot of, you know, um, players across the emerging market space to, to, to take one side or the other. And yet amongst those countries, there are a handful that have managed to maintain a sense of neutrality. I'm thinking Brazil, I'm thinking India. You know, my question for you is, as we kind of move further into this sort of regime, this multipolar regime, do you believe that some of these emerging market economies who can maintain that neutrality should command a higher risk premium than the market's currently pricing in? Or am I just, you know, are we just kind of blowing smoke? <laughs> so, Damien, I think here we need to differentiate between risk and what you know we might call Knightian uncertainty. So risk is when you have a reasonable idea of what are the different outcomes and you attach a probability to them, right? So the central bank meeting coming up, they might hike 25, they might stay unchanged, they might even hike 50, and you can attach some probabilities to that and then you figure out what, what you need to price in accordingly. 
that's risk. That's where the outcomes are generally well-defined and known, and you figure that out. So markets are really good at pricing in risk events. That's why it's so hard to beat the markets when it comes to figuring out what a central bank might do, or even for things like election events and so on. The market's pretty good where the outcomes are defined. But where you have this type of very pure Knightian uncertainty, where I don't really know what are the options on the table. And I think geopolitics fits into this bucket that we don't really know that in this drawer, do we have red socks, blue socks, uh, green socks, or yellow socks? We have no idea what color socks are in the drawer. How can you really put odds to the different types of outcomes? So it's it's hard to say ex ante, do we need risk premium? Because I would ask risk premium for what? You know, there's, there's so many different um, types of outcomes that can... Uh, that can ultimately manifest from from geopolitics. But one thing I would say uh, to wrap up on China is as far as emerging markets are concerned, especially the commodity exporting emerging markets, places like Latin America, historically, the main channel by which they were uh, exposed to China was the commodity trade. And the commodity trade historically was re- really all about China's business cycle, about CapEx investment, you know, the real estate cycle. But over the past year, or maybe even longer, we've seen a breakdown in that relationship between China's yeah. demand for commodities and China's business cycle. Uh, so as far as a, lo- a lot of these countries are concerned, their bilateral trade balances with China are looking really robust, really high, and haven't really seen much of a slowdown. And that's maybe because of geopolitics, that China's demand for commodities is no longer really about the business cycle. Maybe there's some precautionary uh, purchases taking place as well. So that's really important. Um, I, I was just going to clarify what you're saying, Saad. What you're saying is that you know there has been you know consistent demand for commodities from Latam uh, from uh, from China you know from Latam to China, right? I mean, basically, and it hasn't really you know it hasn't really fallen by the wayside. And yet, their currencies, if I'm not mistaken, really aren't reacting to that as much as you would have thought, right, in years past. I mean, you know, a lot of quote-unquote commodity currencies. I mean, Colombia, you had mentioned previously, for example, it really has, you know, it really has dislocated or, you know, diverged from the price of oil. So, you know, is this something that you feel is perhaps a second derivative of, of the China story? It's related to the China story because, you know, in, in a fundamental sense, your volume of exports to China from Latin America are really high. The total value is also very high as well because terms of trade hasn't declined um, right. know, to, to offset the, the volume aspect. But then the narrative is, hey, China is going through a downturn. It's it's both cyclical, it's structural. Uh, that means um, commodity exporters like Latin America should, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones who are most vulnerable and fragile to that. Right, so you've got this clash of narrative versus what's actually happening in the fundamentals, which, you know, we're not seeing a slowdown in that. I think what that means is that the kind of typical portfolio flows that would have chased, um, you know, the risk chasing flows that would have gone into Latin America, they've been missing because the narrative hasn't been there, even though, uh, you know, the current account balances are showing you that, uh, you know, the, the, the commodity exports are looking pretty robust. 
Saad. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, sharing your views with us, with our audience here today. And thank you to our audience of ever-enduring, always-committed, emerging market enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward.